Welcome to the Battlefield Baptist Church Podcast. We are so glad you joined us and pray that this message is a blessing to you today. This week, we heard from Travis Owens on his message for the new year, This Changes Everything. Join us in Isaiah 6. We live in a day where we idolize the good. We trivialize the great. We, as a people, are so consumed with, with trivial, petty, superficial, not, not bad, not bad, but good battles. This time of year, I can think of no better example than football. Football. Anybody ever been to a game? Just raise your hand. You ever been to a game? Anybody have season tickets? Season tickets. Amen. I'll see you at lunch today. Thank you very much. Um, oh, but on the drive to the game, right? There's, there's flags are flying on cars. You get to the game, there's, there's a sea of literally thousands and thousands of people standing to their feet. They're, they're cheering and they're yelling. They're jumping up and down. They're high-fiving and chanting. Someone scores a, a touchdown. And in the midst, in the midst of this like exuberant celebration, two men, right? Two men, complete strangers, find themselves in the midst of each other's embrace. And, and it's like this the entire game, right? Not, not, not two men uncomfortably hugging, but, but the intensity, right? The, the intensity, but then, then I read these passages, this one by Jonathan Edwards. It says, our external delights, our earthly pleasures, our ambition and our reputation, our human relationships, for all of these things, our desires are eager, our appetites strong, our, our love warm and affectionate. When it comes to these things, our hearts are tender, insensitive, deeply impressed, easily moved, much concerned, and greatly engaged. We are depressed at our losses. We are excited and joyful about our worldly success and prosperity. But when it comes to spiritual matters, how dull we feel. How, how heavy and hard our hearts. We can sit and hear of the infinite length and height and breadth of the love of our God, His Son, Christ Jesus, and, and of the giving of His infinitely dear Son, and yet sit there cold and unmoved. If we are going to be excited about anything, shouldn't it be our spiritual lives? Is there anything more inspiring, more exciting, more lovable or desirable in heaven or on earth than the gospel of Jesus Christ? We should be utterly humbled that we are not more emotionally affected than we are in the church. Oh, I I pray to lead a group of students whose, whose affections or awaken for Jesus far more than they are for football or, or baseball or any of the other good things in this world. If only we could see God for who he truly is 
as Isaiah did in chapter 6. Turn there with me. I am hesitant this morning because I know this passage is very familiar. But I do pray that God will awaken our affections by his spirit this morning. Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me. For I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts. Which brings us. To our first point, we have an indescribably great God. Our God reigns. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, 52 years, 52 years he had been king. We are used to a president um, who was in leadership uh, four years, a maximum of eight. But 52 years he had been king. For many, if not most, he had been the only leader that they would have known. Many would have been born, they would have grown up, had children, and died all under his leadership. And for the most part, he was a good king. He was a good king, he pridefully stumbled toward the end, but for the most part, he was a good king. The country and the people of God had done well. But now he was gone. And Isaiah looked up and he saw the Lord. When the king was gone, Isaiah looked up and he saw who the real king was. And he was still on his throne. Throughout history, um, lords have, have come and lords have gone. Kings, kings have come and kings have gone. Presidents have come and and presidents who've gone, but there is one king who remains. He is exalted, high and lifted up. Isaiah tells us surrounded by the seraphim. Literally means burning ones. Angels who are ablaze with the adoration of of our God. Continually giving glory and honor and praise. And what is their song selection? Holy. Holy, holy. It's, it's as if they're grasping, they're grasping at this leash of language and they're trying to find one word to describe the one with whom they surround. And the only thing that comes out just comes out over and over again. Holy, holy, holy. His holiness is terrifying. He is without error. He is perfect. Our God has never had a wrong thought. He has never done a wrong deed. Even the things in our lives that that we don't understand, the, the things that hurt, the things that we can't comprehend, 
Those things are right. He is without error. But not, not just without error. In a sense, the same thing could be said about the seraphim that surround him. They are not part of fallen humanity. They are not part of, of fallen angels. But for him to be holy doesn't just mean that he's without error. It means that he is without equal. He is completely other, incomparable, indescribable, and it is folly for anyone to try to find anyone or anything to compare him to. Isaiah 40, verse 25, To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things? He's talking about the stars. And bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by name. Hundreds, hundreds of billions of stars. And that's, that's just in our galaxy. Right? They, they estimate multiple other galaxies, each with possibly hundreds of billions of more stars. And our God knows them all by name. Joe. Samantha. XJ199 or 19. I don't know, but our God knows. There is not one piece of creation, not one speck of dirt, not one drop of water, not one grain of sand that does not respond to the absolute bidding of our God. God is sovereign. He is supreme ruler over it all. May it not be said of any one of us in this room, there is not an evident respect for the author of creation, sovereign over all nature, over all nations. Turn with me to Isaiah 36. While you're turning there, I would like to remind you of the context of the book of Isaiah. Israel has been split into two kingdoms by Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Solomon's sons. The southern kingdom is made up of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. The northern kingdom consists of the ten remaining tribes. This time the northern kingdom has fallen. The Assyrians are on the assault. And city after city after city has fallen. And now they surround Jerusalem with 185,000 troops ready to pulverize the city. Can, Can you imagine? Can you imagine being in Jerusalem? Can you imagine being in a city where all, all the things that the Assyrians have done, all the cities that they've conquered, all the brutality? Can you imagine? And the king's telling you, just, just trust in God. I know it seems impossible, but, but just trust in God. Listen to what happens. This, this Assyrian commander, he comes out, he begins to threaten the people of God. And this is where we'll pick up verse 18. He says, beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? 
Who are they among all the gods of these lands that they have delivered their land out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Wow. Wow. He should not have said that. He said, what, what God, what God will be able to deliver you out of my hand? We are the Assyrians. Look at what God says. Skip to chapter 37, down to verse 23. God says, whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have thou exalted thy voice? He says, don't raise your voice to me. Lift it up thine eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel. By thy servants thou hast reproached the Lord, and hast said, by the multitude of my chariots, am I come up to the height of the mountains? To the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the, the, tall, the tall cedars thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof. And I will enter into the height of, the, of his border, and the forest of his Carmel. I have digged and drank water. And with the sole of my feet have I dried up the rivers and the besieged places. He said, hast thou not heard long ago? He said, you didn't hear? You didn't know? Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it? And of ancient times that I have formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that thou should be laid to waste the defense cities and to ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were small of power. They were dismayed and confounded. And were as the grass of the field and as the green herb and as the grass on the housetops. And as the corn blasted before it grown up. But I know thy abode. He says, I know where you live. And thy going out and thy coming in and thy rage against me. And because thy rage against me and thy tumult has come up in mine ears, therefore will I put my hook in thy nose, and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back the way which thou camest. Hoo-wee, come get you some. Them's is fighting words. Let's see what happens. Verse 33, skip down to verse 33. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. And shall not come into this city, saith the Lord, for I will defend it, this city, to save it for mine sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote the camp of the Assyrians, a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. That's a hundred and eighty-five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Mark this down. You do not mess with God. God says, Assyria, you are in my hands. All throughout this book, Egypt, you are in my hands. Judah, you are in my hands. You all are in my hands. And isn't, isn't this good news? I mean, isn't this good news? Isn't it good to know that Kim Jong-un is not king over all? That Bashir al-Assad is not king over all? Benjamin Netanyahu is not king over all? David Cameron, Theresa May, Barack Obama, or Vladimir Putin, or Donald Trump will not be king over all. Our God reigns. He is sovereign over all nature and over all nations. And as we are reminded in Romans 9, he is sovereign over every one of our lives. He was sovereign over 2016, and he will be sovereign over your 2017. 
Which brings us abruptly to our second point. We are a sinfully depraved people. What was Isaiah's response to God? It, it wasn't wow. It wasn't it wasn't ooey. It was woe. Woe is me. I am ruined. I am undone. In the Hebrew, the word used literally means destruction. Woe is me. I am undone. I am ruined. Destruction upon me. And we, we read that. And we think, destruction? Really? I mean, isn't that overdoing it a bit? Destruction? I mean, after all, Isaiah, Isaiah was one of the good guys. He was, he was God's man. He was, he was God's prophet. Oh, how we need this proper understanding of ourselves in the church today. See, we look, we look all throughout Scripture and we, and we see these, these somewhat seemingly extreme pictures of, of the sinfulness of man in light of the wrath of God. And we're, we're tempted at times to think, isn't, isn't this overly severe? I mean, do you remember in, in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah? All those people, the whole city. And not just that, Lot and his wife, they're, they're running from the city. And God tells them, don't look back. And his wife looks back, she takes one glance. And what happened? Pillar of salt. Numbers 15, a man's caught, he's picking up sticks on the Sabbath. They bring the matter before God, they say, what should we do? What does God say? Stone him. Stoned to death for picking up sticks. Second Samuel, Uzi, he reaches out and he just touches the ark to keep it from falling. Struck down dead on the spot. It's not, it's not just Old Testament either, it's New Testament too. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira comes in and deceives about the offering, struck dead. Wife, same thing. That's, that's going to hurt the high attendance numbers on Sunday morning. People start dying in the offering. People ain't coming back. And we see these, we see these pictures. And really, don't we, don't we at least wrestle with this seeming a little extreme? I mean, stardom, he's picking up sticks. Evaporated for a glance, one glance. And yes, they, they lied, but to fall over dead on the spot, really? I mean, haven't we done much worse? This is because we have such a man-centered view of sin. See, we think that if someone were to come in and lie, if someone were to come in and lie to me, they shouldn't be struck dead. Right? If your children disobey you, I mean, you may want to, but they shouldn't be stoned to death, right? They shouldn't be stoned to death. This is where we need to realize it's not about how, how small or how large the sin is. It's about the greatness of the one who has sinned against. Sin, sin against ISIS, you're, you're, not, you're not really guilty. Sin against man, and you're guilty. But sin against an infinitely holy God, and you are infinitely guilty. Oh, but praise God, that is not the end of the story. 
because we have come to point number three. We serve a scandalously merciful God. Scandalously is a word, by the way. I Googled it. See, when someone receives something that they don't deserve, that's, that's what a scandal is. And that's what happens to Isaiah in his vision. Uh, turn back to chapter 6, verse 6. Verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphims flew unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Through nothing that he had done, God saw fit to cleanse Isaiah. See, we, we expect righteousness to be, to be lifted up, to be praised. We expect wrong to be condemned. We expect God to do the same. So what are, we, what are we to think of a God who looks at that which is totally, totally wrong and says, totally right? Turn with me to Isaiah 53. I mean, how is this possible? This is scandalous. How is this even possible? In Isaiah 6, we're given a picture of the, the holiness of God and the, and the sinfulness of man. Right? And a God who takes a sacrifice from off the altar to provide atonement for sin. But the picture in Isaiah 6 is clearly left incomplete. We know that the Lord has set up a system of continual sacrifice. Sacrifices like Passover, where lamb is, is bought in and he's, and he's slaughtered and his blood is, is made for a covering. His blood provides a way out. His blood provides a way out from judgment. Or like the Day of Atonement, where every year the priest would bring in sacrifices. And, and he'd, take, he'd take one of the sacrifices and the priest would sacrifice it. He'd slaughter it. And he'd sprinkle its blood to atone. To show that the, the penalty for sin had been paid. Death had been doled out. And then, and then if you remember, it would take the, it would take the other sacrifice, the, the scapegoat. And it would lay hands on it. Right, to, to symbolize the sins of the people being passed through the sacrifice. It's a picture of the, the sins being passed through the sacrifice. And the goat was taken away outside the camp. Out to the wilderness, never to be seen again. It's a vivid picture every year for his people of a God who covers sin and he removes it. And it's that same word that's used to describe the, the goat being carried away, the goat carrying away the sins of the people. It's, it's that same word in Leviticus 16 that Isaiah brings in here in chapter 53 and verse 4. He says, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone into his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is saying there's a, there's a servant who's coming. He's coming. He will endure the penalty of our sin. He will carry the penalty of sin. But, but he won't just endure the penalty of sin. See, we can't just stop there because the picture is much, much deeper than that. Yes, he will endure the penalty of sin. But don't miss it. Don't miss it here. He will endure the penalty of sin in the place of sinners. Look at the verses we just read. Look at how many times the first person plural is used. Surely he hath borne our griefs. He hath carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone into his own. The iniquity of us all. No less, no less than ten times in these three short verses, Isaiah is pointing us to, he's inviting us into this passage. In our place, on our behalf, instead of us. He endured the penalty of sin in the place of sinners. We know now that this passage was speaking of none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's God's forgiveness of our sins through Jesus, which I am so undeserving. That's a huge scandal. To think that one day, probably sooner than I realize, I'll be back in the courtroom again. And I'll be standing as the probably the greatest prosecuting attorney ever will be across the courtroom and he'll be hurling his accusations. He brings forth a closing argument. He says, Your Honor, and he will address him properly. You marked my words. He says, Your Honor, Mr. Owens is nothing but a liar, a deceiver, Nothing but a seven-time felon deserving of eternal punishment. As I stand there guilty, guilty, guilty as the day is long, the greatest defense attorney that's ever lived will stand up and proclaim, I paid that price. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty on all counts. That's an amazingly scandalous mercy. It's full, fueled by grace, and it's made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about our ministry, please go to battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. See you next time.